to Psalm 132. Now, if you've been with us during the Psalms of Ascent, then uh, our series of the Psalms of Ascent, then we, you know we have, for the most part, been tackling these Psalms two at a time. Uh, this morning, we're just going to be looking at Psalm 132. So, we have two more weeks, including this one, in the Psalms of Ascent, and then the following week, we're going to be diving back into the book of Joshua. So, I'm excited to um, be looking forward to our wrapping up of this series and getting into that. Um, but for now, we're going to glory in the words of this psalm. Now, uh, my life has been lived on the move. I've lived in four different states, and I've lived in 12 different houses or apartments. So for me, home has been a lot less about location, and it's been a lot more about who's there with me. When we moved to Sheboygan, uh, we decided to buy a house rather than to rent, primarily because we wanted to invest our lives here. We weren't just looking for a place to live, and we were looking for a place to make our home. And now, after two and a half years, I think I can say that our house really does feel like our home. Um, there are memories there. There are milestones that have been reached there. And so there are things that they have meaning to us. So while we still like to travel around, we still like to explore, there's just something about being able to come back to our home to find rest. I'm sure you know that the best rest you get is going to be in your bed in your own house. It's your home. It's your place. Well, the Psalms of Ascents, as we have seen in our time throughout, we have seen that they were written at different times. They were written by different authors. But they all have a common theme that runs throughout them, which directs us to find our rest in the presence of God. From the cries to God for his deliverance, to the celebration of how he forgives and atones for the sins of his people, these psalms collectively lift our gaze from the trouble that comes from living in a fallen world to behold God in the splendor of his majesty, to trust him so that we have hope in him and to long to be in his presence. Last week, I mentioned how difficult it, that it was difficult for me to see Psalm 130 as anything less than the pinnacle of these songs because of the way that it focuses our attention on God's power to forgive our sin and to rescue us from the judgment that we deserve. And yet, the reason why I said uh, that I even question whether or not that could be the pinnacle of these psalms is because I think that the true climax of these songs is probably Psalm 132, which is what we're looking at today. Now the reason for that is because Psalm 132 raises our eyes to new heights to consider not only the riches of God's forgiveness, but the even greater inheritance that he gives his people, a city that will never pass away, in a kingdom that endures forever, a place where he dwells with us and we with him. This is the result of that forgiveness that we read about in Psalm 130. This is an inheritance which is only possible because of the riches of God's work in and through Jesus Christ. And that work is here anticipated by the psalmist as he rejoices in how God had chosen to make Zion the place of his dwelling. Now we know from the author of Hebrews that the longing and the joy of this psalm, while it was written in response primarily to the way that God had chosen to make Jerusalem the place of his dwelling in the temple, that it was written in hope and in faith of something better, 
since he says that the saints of old desired a better country, that they desired a heavenly one, and that because of this hope, God was not ashamed to be called their God. In Hebrews 12, verse 22, we are told that we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, which has become our home because of the work of King Jesus. So what the saints, uh, what these saints who first sung these songs knew in part, we have come to know in whole because Christ has come. And so the joy and the awe that this song captures ought to be amplified all the more in our hearts as we behold the fulfillment of this song in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So without further ado, if you would please stand for, with me for the reading of God's word as we get into this glorious song. This is the word of the Lord. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this psalm is what I'd call a heavenly homecoming. God coming to dwell with and among his people, resulting in the joy and the praise that they give to him. So if Psalm 130, which is such a pinnacle in the Psalms of Ascents, is about how God has forgiven us, then Psalm 132 is about how God has come to dwell with us. The theme that runs through this psalm is a theme of joy that comes to God's people as they come to his dwelling place. And so it's a song that celebrates God's promise and calls on him to see those promises through, which then leaves us hungry for the final and full fulfillment of that work in Jesus Christ. So the main idea I have for you this morning, the main idea of the text and of this sermon is simply this. It's an it's a exhortation to you. 
earnestly desire the presence of God. Earnestly desire the presence of God in the city of God with God's chosen king. What we find in this psalm is how God's work of restoration centers around the person and the work of David's offspring. If you trace God's promise of salvation through the, from the fall of Adam and Eve, throughout the whole storyline of the Old Testament, and then on into the New Testament, you find God promising to send a Redeemer, to send a Messiah. And as time progresses, that promise becomes more and more specific. God promises to Abraham that he will have an offspring through whom all the peoples of the world shall be blessed. And then that promise, we get a better picture of what that looks like through God's covenant with the nation of Israel. And then it gets even more specific in God's promise, his covenant with David, where he says that he tells David that he will have a son who will sit on the throne forever. Psalm 132 celebrates that promise, and it leaves us hungry for the offspring of David who makes that a reality. So there are three components of this song that I want to bring to your attention this morning as we study this together, which I think are essential for this psalm, as it would, both as it was used originally in the worship that Israel would do as they came to the temple, and also uh, for seeing its significance as it anticipates the coming of the promised King, Jesus Christ. So I have three points for you this morning. Each, uh, the first, in the first, we will center on God's dwelling place. God's dwelling place. Second, we will look at David's offspring. David's offspring. And finally, we will rejoice in the city and her king. We will see a city and her king. First, we want to look at God's dwelling place. Now, if you've ever gotten a chance to drive by a place where you used to live, then you know it can be a really eerie feeling. Because while the outside of the house may look the same, or mostly the way that you left it, you know that it's not really your home anymore. You might feel very comfortable walking up to the door that you used to open all the time, but then you find that it's locked and you can't get in. Or if you can get in, you might find someone on the couch who wasn't there before. In my experience, it's not the building or the house that makes a place a home. It's the presence of those who are there. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he did something that he had not done before. He directed Moses and the people to make a, a rather large tent called a tabernacle. This tent was God's. It was set apart for him. And it was intended <clears throat> to house what, the Ark of the Covenant, which was a golden box that had two cherubim on top, above which God tells Moses in Exodus 25 that he would meet with him to speak with him about everything that he had commanded the people of Israel. So this ark was in many ways a representative of God's direct presence because it was there that God said he would dwell and he would speak. <clears throat> the ark was important because in a way it localized God's presence with his people. It's called the ark of the covenant because it signified God's commitment to Israel, his chosen people. He assured them with the ark that he was theirs and that they were his. I like the way that Daniel Hyde captures the wonder of the ark when he says, This God is not bound by time, but he bound himself to the time-bound experience of his people. This God is not bound by space, but he bound himself to this box. 
He is above all creational constraints, but he bound himself to them. He is everywhere, but he was there. So the wonder of the tabernacle and later the wonder of the temple wasn't the ornate decorations. It wasn't the gold. It wasn't the sweet smell of incense. It wasn't the crackle of the fire where, of the altar where sacrifices were made. No, the wonder of the place was that God was there, that his presence was there in the midst of his people, though they were shielded from him by this tent. For many years, even after the nation of Israel had been given the promised land, we see that the Ark of the Covenant was housed in that tent. Throughout the time of Joshua, the judges, and even Israel's first king, Saul, the Ark was housed in a temporary place, in a place that was built to be able to move here and there. It was transient. There was this longing for something that was established. In that time, we see that Israel did not always treat the ark with the respect that it deserved. They treated it rather as a trinket, as a good luck charm, and they took it to battle with them against the Philistines, where it was captured, and then it was put on display as a trophy of war in the Philistines' uh, god, uh, his temple, Dagon. Now, if you know that story, you know how God triumphed, even as he sent his ark into exile, how he destroyed the image of Dagon that was there and absolutely wreaked havoc on the Philistines. But that day, at least for, the, for Israel, was one of the darkest moments in their history because as the ark was captured, as it was taken out of the promised land, it symbolized, in effect, how God had removed his glory from them because of the way they had transgressed his commands, for the way they had not respected him or feared him. And after wreaking havoc on the Philistines, we see that God did bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. But it continued to be housed in that tent, somewhat in obscurity. That is, until God raised up a new king who had a heart that longed for him. That king was a man by the name of David which is what brings us to verses 1 through 5 in, verses one, in, in Psalm 132. Now, as we look at these verses, we see that Psalm 132 begins with an appeal to God to regard his servant David. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. That's how the psalm begins. Remember how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Notice how this appeal to God on behalf of David is specifically focused on God's presence with his people. It's a cry to God to remember the hardships that David endured and to remember the way he had regarded God as a servant of the Lord. David's deepest longing was for God. And as the king of Israel, David's deepest longing was to see God's permanent presence dwell with and among his people. We're seeing two things here in the way that David is described. First, we're seeing the way that David's love for God made him anxious to honor him in a worthy manner. If we go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find David talking to the prophet Nathan saying, See now, I, I dwell in a house of cedar. 
But the ark of God dwells in a tent, which means that David was uncomfortable with the idea of living in such a royal house while the presence of the Lord was still relegated to a tent. It made him uncomfortable, anxious to see this this permanence there. He wanted to regard God. Psalm 132 describes how restless and how determined David was to find a place for the Lord, a place which God would choose, but a place that would, would, would show God's presence on a permanent basis among the people. Now, as we read this, this seems pretty radical, right? There's no way someone could live this long without sleep. Uh, I'm not sure that we're supposed to take the anxiety that is being described here literally to mean that David refused to live in his house or that he would not sleep until the place that God had designated for his house was revealed. Rather, I think what the psalmist is trying to do is to communicate to us how desperately this mattered to David and how committed he was to seeking this out. Now, the second thing we're seeing here is the regard that David had for the welfare of the nation of Israel. This is the model of good kingship. As king, David's role was to shepherd the people. He was a steward of God's chosen people. And he knew that without God's presence in and among his people, there would be no blessing for them in the land of promise. So he was restless to find a place for God to dwell, not because God needed a house, but because he knew that Israel would never flourish apart from God's presence. So as king, David was eager to see God dwell in the presence of his people. And we see that concern in verses 8 through 10 as the psalmist appeals once more to God, saying, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. The blessings of God are many, and the Bible makes a direct connection between those blessings and his presence. Remember what we discovered in Psalm 130 last week. With you, there is forgiveness. With the Lord, there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. The presence of God is to be desired since he clothes his people with righteousness and he fills them with joy since at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The appeal here of Psalm 132 to God regarding his dwelling place is an appeal of the heart that desires to experience the blessing and the joy that is only found in God's presence. It's a heart that thirsts for God the way that David's heart thirsted for him, like a deer panting for water. You see that longing in the response that we read about in verses 6 through 7. You see that as the people hear news of this, we're told that, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jr. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. There's this anxiety, this desire to be in God's presence, to behold him and to respond to him with due affection. Now, I'll get to the significance of Ephrathah and of J.R. in a moment. For now, as we think about the presence of God, of God's dwelling place, I really just want to spend a little time thinking about this pursuit of satisfaction in God that we ought to bring with us into our worship. The human heart was designed, it was meant to be satisfied in God. We were created in the image of God to know Him, to love Him, 
to be reflections of His glory. Worship is more than singing. It's more than just coming to church. Worship is more than just prayer. Worship is a heartfelt response to the splendor and the majesty of God. True worship, worship that is done in spirit and in truth, which is pleasing to God, is that awe and that fear that comes from living in a right relationship with Him. It's like that gasp that just comes from our lips when we see something truly amazing, only it's bigger than that because it comes from the deepest affections of our heart. That is worship. What we do here on a Sunday morning is typically called the worship service. As I was writing out the subject line for the Zoom link to be sent out uh, online, I thought I caught myself writing the worship service link because that's just what we naturally call it. But the thing is that that term really can be misleading because it makes it sound like the church is dealing out a commodity here. There are some churches who do treat Sunday morning like that. They focus their efforts on providing a good experience. The focus is on the production. Now, I want you all to come here. I want you to have a good experience when you come to church. But I don't want you to have a good experience just because you enjoyed the production. That's not why we're here. That's not what worship is about. Worship on a Sunday morning is about coming to the presence of God, gathered together with the members of the body of Christ, hungry, famished, looking to be filled and satisfied with with God, the way that the psalmist speaks about here in verses 6 and 7. The things which God actually instructs us to do on a Sunday morning as a church, things like sitting under the preaching of the word like you are right now, singing together as we have already and will do, praying with and for one another. These things all have a design. And while we find that they are designed to resound to the glory of God, we also find that they are designed to have an effect on us. So that when we do them, we feast on the glories of God. We are satisfied and we long all the more for heaven when we will do that in the very direct presence of the glory of Christ. Each of these things that we do on a Sunday morning has the tendency to affect us, to encourage us, to shape us, to feed us, and then to enhance our love for God. We're told not to neglect the meeting of ourselves together because these are the means which God uses to give rest to our weary souls, to nourish us, to rebuke us, to convict us, and to prepare us for the glories of heaven, even as we labor on in the service of the King in this life. Since the coming of Christ, we get to experience in a fuller way what the psalmist did and what he describes here. Since God no longer dwells in, makes his, houses his presence above the ark, he no longer houses his presence in a tabernacle or in a temple that is made with human hands. He has taken up residence in the very hearts of his people. He has made his dwelling with those who are joined to Christ by faith, having poured out his Holy Spirit on us. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 asks, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Likewise, Ephesians 2 explains that we are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but that we have been made fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure of the church is being joined together into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, Paul writes, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If God's dwelling place in the temple, above the mercy seat, brought so much joy and satisfaction to the psalmist's heart, so much joy that he felt the need to sing about it, then how much more ought we to pursue joy in God as he has made his dwelling place in and among us with the very presence of the Holy Spirit? That begins, that joy, that pursuit of joy begins by going hard after God here and now as we come together on a Sunday morning to worship. And I think that radically changes the way you come to church. If we come to church just to check a box, if we come to church because we feel like we have to produce an experience, or we come out of a sense of drudgery, we've missed the point. Rather, we should come with desperate hearts seeking to be filled with the knowledge of Christ so that we take that out throughout the week and we continue to live lives of worship in everything we do, looking forward to the next day, the next week when we'll be gathered back together to be filled yet again. So we've looked at God's dwelling place and the significance of that. Second, we're gonna, we need to look at this theme of David's offspring. Now, it's impossible to miss the connection that the psalmist makes here between God's dwelling and his covenant promise to David. This is an extremely important connection because as we will see, it's through David's offspring that God takes his dwelling uh, from being in the temple or the tabernacle and elevates it to being among his very people. The theme of the Davidic promise starts with verse 1, and then it runs throughout every section of this psalm, though it's really in verses 11 and 12 that we see that promise laid out most clearly. If you will, look with me there at verses 11 through 12. The psalmist says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit on your throne. Now, this promise was given to David, and it is recorded in detail for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, in response to David's desire to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. So the scene that is set there, we are told, is that David was there in Jerusalem in his house, and that he called the prophet Nathan and that he told them, he told Nathan, I want to build a house for God. And that Nathan responded, as any good prophet would, David, do all that is within your heart. That is a noble thing. Go do it. But then that very night, we're told, God sent Nathan back to David with a different, different message. And this is what he said. Thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel when I commanded them to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? 
Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now you can see, based on 2 Samuel 7, why this psalm makes such a strong connection between God's dwelling place and David's throne. God told David that he was going to build him a house. Not only that, he told him that he would have an offspring who would reign forever. And this son was going to be the one who built God's dwelling place. Now, on first glance, as we read this, we think, well, clearly this is Solomon, because Solomon is the one who actually built the temple that David desired. And in one sense, that is true. Solomon fulfilled David's desire to build the first temple in Jerusalem. In fact, you'll find some of the lines of this psalm used directly in Solomon's prayer, which he prayed at the very dedication of the temple after it was built. But here's the thing. Just as God's covenant with David included discipline when his sons disobeyed God, Solomon and every other king who came from the line of David sinned. They broke God's commandments. They failed. And none of them sat on a throne that lasted forever. God's covenant with David was concerned with his sons who reigned temporarily But it was ultimately speaking of someone greater, a greater offspring than Solomon or even his father David was. In fact, David calls this offspring his Lord in Psalm 110, something which Jesus brings up to the crowds in Mark 12. God promised David that he was going to make a dynasty for him, but he also said that he was going to elevate his throne to something that was greater. And this is how he did it. We read in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, about a future king, a king who is coming out of Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem. The same place which the psalmist refers to in verse 6. His coming forth, Micah says, is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Tell me, whose coming was sung about in Bethlehem? 
It is no accident that Jesus was born there. It is no accident that he is later called the Good Shepherd. You see, Jesus was in fact descended from the line of David. He was the true heir of David's throne. But he is also the Son of God. And as such, we understand from the teaching of the New Testament that he has been given a throne and a dominion, Colossians 1, 12-14, that is forever. It's for this that Jesus is exalted and referred to in Revelation 5 as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David who has conquered. He is the builder of a new and a better temple than the one that Solomon built because he conquered sin and death on the cross and has risen from the grave. And we are told in Philippians 2 that God has therefore exalted him as Lord over all so that all might bow before him and worship him and acknowledge him that he is indeed the Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is so much more to be said about Jesus, about King Jesus, and how he fulfills God's promise to David more than I have time to lay out for you this morning. But the main feature that I want you to see about this, about how Jesus is connected to this psalm, is that Jesus is here identified as the builder of a better temple and a better city, since he is the one who has fulfilled the hope of all those saints who are looking for that better city and looking for that better kingdom. Not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. And that brings us to consider the city and her king. Look with me at verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Now, David did not pick Zion. Zion, actually, if you looked at it on a map, or if you looked at pictures, is not that glorious of a place. There are much greater and more noble mountains in that area. But this is where God had chosen. This was not a result of human effort but of God's. And this is what God says concerning those who dwell, his own dwelling place there. He says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Now, once again, time and time throughout this series, I keep pointing you to Hebrews 11 and the desires of those saints of old who were desiring this heavenly country. And the reason I keep going there is because of what he says in Hebrews 11, 39 through 40, that even though those saints of old were commended by God for their faith, they didn't receive what had been promised because we see that God was providing something better, something which we have seen and witnessed in the very face of Christ. You see, we don't come to a physical temple to worship. We worship in a cafeteria. The location does not matter. It is what is here. It is the dwelling place of God because this is where God's people meet to worship. A psalmist talks about coming to God's footstool to worship because he knew that when they came to worship, these things were a shadow of better things which were to come. The ark was special because of the way that God made his presence dwell there. But up until Christ, that was always a veiled presence. No one could look on the ark. No one could touch the ark and live. There was always a separation between God and man, which was signified by a great curtain which hung in the temple, which was there as a barricade, protecting the nation from being consumed by the holiness of God. Now we are told in the Gospels that when Jesus died, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Why are we told that? 
because we are meant to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, real atonement was made. That it really was finished, as Jesus said. And God wasn't pleased any longer to resign His glory to a physical temple, but was rather pleased to manifest it in the hearts of His people. This is the promise of verse 17, where God says, There, in Zion, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And I see why that matters. We have to go to Revelation 21, which says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, look, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then in verse 22 we read this, And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its light is the Lamb. When God chose Zion to be his dwelling place, he selected the place where Jesus would make the atonement that our sins deserved and demanded. But more than that, it was the place where where God secured peace and righteousness for us. And he has elevated that now since he is making all things new. Do you see now why it was such big news, such a big deal for the crowds to cry as Jesus was making his way into Jerusalem? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You'll see in verses 13 through 15 how God is the one who says that he will be the one who removes the suffering from his people and meets their needs. This is what he says. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout with joy. How has he done that, we may ask? He has done this, according to Revelation 21, to the work of Jesus Christ. Friends, you just can't make this stuff up. When the psalmist wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he spoke better than he knew because God was doing something in Zion, something that was going to fulfill all righteousness, something that was going to take people like us from being sinners and rebels and haters of God who were against Him and which would transform us into sons and citizens in His kingdom. So as we come to the end, towards the end of the Psalm of Ascents, the Psalms of Ascents, as we look back down the mountain we have climbed in the past few weeks, back towards those cries for deliverance in Psalm 120 and Psalm 121, we are able to say that he has not only heard our cry, but that he has done more than we could have ever had imagined. I know that a lot of this is, this is probably heavy. 
especially if you've never really thought about who David was and why God's promises to him matter the way they do. But it's good for us, I think, to probe the depths of the scriptures like this from time to time. Because if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in him as your Savior and your Lord, this is your inheritance. You are, according to the book of Galatians, members of the Jerusalem that is above, which is free because it is ruled by a king who has secured that freedom through his own death and resurrection. This is why Jesus can say in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus told his disciples as he was preparing to do that work, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, would I have not told you? Jesus can say all these things because he... He is the horn of David. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one whose light gives life to men. He is the one who blesses his people with provisions, who satisfies the poor with the bread of his own body, who clothes believers as a nation of priests with righteousness and gives joy to his saints that is unshakable. This is our Savior This is our King. This is our God. And it makes us long and look for the heavenly city, which He has promised is coming. The question we must ask, based off all of this in the end about ourselves, is whether or not we know that this inheritance is in fact ours. To ask whether or not heaven is our home, whether or not the Spirit of God dwells in us, You see, the benefits of Jesus' saving work are only for those who repent of their sins and trust that what He says is true. The kingdom of God is at hand. And because of Christ, its gates are wide open to those who put their trust in its King, who are counted as righteous in God's sight because they have been clothed with the righteousness of the only begotten Son of God. We may know as a sure fact that heaven is ours if we believe this good news since we are saved by grace through faith in him. So the dwelling place of God is an awe-filled place. It is a fearful place. But for those who are in King Jesus, the son of David and the son of God, it is home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not just rescued your people from their sins but that you have rescued us by your grace for your glory and have secured for us the very riches of Christ so that we, you count us not only as your servants, you count us and call us as your sons and your daughters. We thank you, Father, for the, the mysteries and the power of your work. 
which you spoke about from the very opening of the pages of Scripture and have spoken about throughout history have revealed according to the timing of your perfect wisdom and have manifested finally and foremost in the work of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would unite us to him, that we would satisfy our souls in him, and that as we do, we would learn to long for heaven, to live for the day when we will be in your dwelling, for the day when we will be perfected in you. And I pray, Father, for as we work now in the field that you've appointed us to, that we would share this good news with others, and that through that, through that sowing of the seed of the gospel, that you would save many, many in this community, in this nation, and around the world. And we pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.